Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I must tell you that studying Ephesians week in and week out has just become candy for my soul. I am so encouraged by this incredible book and even the detour that we've taken out of it during these weeks. Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read you the passage that has launched us into a bit of a, of a detour. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. A few weeks ago, we studied this passage in some depth, took a couple of weeks to get through it, and it launched us into considering the doctrine of election, sovereign grace in salvation, God's sovereignty in our belief. And that study prompted me to take a detour from our exposition of the book of Ephesians, as you know, and to look more closely at this doctrine. It should be no surprise to anyone that this doctrine has been disturbing and divisive to so many. It has been something that has actually split churches before. The doctrine of sovereign grace was most clearly defined and delineated during the Dutch Reformation, not long after Martin Luther. As a result of a debate with the followers of Jacob Arminius, those who followed John Calvin's theology in the Netherlands articulated the doctrine that we know as sovereign grace or the doctrines of grace in five statements or five declarations or five points. We've covered the history of this debate a few studies ago, but it led us to the place where we can look at the doctrines of grace, or some call it the five points of Calvinism, or the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance in the saints. Now, as I've said, those are not my favorite designations, all of them, of those doctrines. They were all written the way they were written in response to what they were being accused of. So these didn't come out of a vacuum. In order to understand that, we've, we've looked at what it means to define these doctrines in New Testament ways. And uh, we've kind of broken them down into these five doctrinal convictions that provide security in God's sovereign oversight of our salvation, his sovereign election. We outlined that very quickly. Let me show you what we've done. Um, is total inability, which is the idea of total depravity. That means we are totally unable to come to God because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Electing choice, which is God's prerogative to save sinners, what's called unconditional election in the TULIP acronym, definite atonement or God's particular redemption, which is also called limited atonement, not, again, one of my favorite designations because it really doesn't speak of what's going on in that doctrine, which is God is electing a specific bride for his son. Overwhelming grace that we're gonna look at today, which is also called irresistible grace, God's loving deliverance, 
And then the last one we'll look at next week is enduring faith or the perseverance of the saints. Now, in order to get a grasp on that, we're going to go back and look at overwhelming grace today. I want to read you a story. You're welcome to turn there, but it's perfectly fine if you just listen to this story that all builds towards one statement that is so incredibly important. Acts chapter 16. Just listen to how this builds and listen carefully to how it concludes, okay? Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that he was, his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. This was after the Jerusalem council, obviously. So the churches were being strengthened in faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran straight course to Samothrace and, and also on the day following to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and they were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where, there were, where, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had assembled. Now, all of that was read for this verse. They go out down by the river looking for a nice place to have a quiet time and a prayer time. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Listen to this. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Think about that. The Lord opened her heart. A few years ago, we had <clears throat> a crisis in our home in the Holland House. We were watching a steady and escalating rebellion in one of our sons, John. I have full permission from John to read you what I'm about to read you and to tell you the story. I went over all of these notes with him even this week. And he said, for God's glory, it's a fine story to tell. Without going into details, we noticed that about 80% of our parenting was going into one of our sons. This time was very difficult for Kim and for me. I can remember many nights when Kim and I would hold each other and pray and weep in bed 
until we prayed our, ours, our hearts out, our tears were empty, and there was nothing else to say. I was surprised to learn something about myself during those difficult years. It was very humbling, and that was simply this. I had become a theoretical Calvinist. What I mean by that is this. I believed in the doctrines of grace. I had taught them in churches where I'd served, taught them in our church here, taught them around the world. I'd read all the classics on Calvinism and our church even has a reputation of being that Calvinistic church on Mission Road. But somehow I was able to hold those truths in my mind, preach them from the pulpit, but there was a disconnect of which I was not aware in, in my own heart with John. Here's the truth about what was happening with our boy. My best sermons had not changed his heart. Our strictest discipline had not changed his heart. Grounding him, taking away electronics, holding back privileges had not changed his heart. My logical and biblical victories over his arguments had not moved the needle of his heart. Forcing his church attendance, encouraging his Bible reading, making him read books, pushing him toward our amazing youth pastor Adam didn't change his heart. Even our regular father-son talks that we were having had done nothing. I distinctly remember the day, I remember where we were sitting, the coffee shop where we were sat. He looked at me after I had been pleading with him to consider Christ and to turn from his own selfishness. He said, Dad, I think you need to realize that Dad, I think you need to realize that Christianity doesn't work with me. Kim and I were devastated. We were heartbroken. I talked to a few elders. I was considering stepping away from pastoral ministry, giving more fuller time to shepherding him. I was even got so far as to consider what kind of job I might get, realizing very quickly how unskilled I am. In a word... We were spiritually paralyzed and desperate in all of our efforts. But in God's kindness to Rick and Kim, he drew us back from the theory of our theology to actually putting it into practice in our parenting. And it all centered around what we're studying this morning, this idea, this doctrine of overwhelming irresistible grace. It became the gravitational center and a theological awakening in both of our hearts. I can say this without exaggeration. This changed my life. It changed Kim's life. To begin with, I want to acknowledge that we all live in that world we've, we've described as fraught with definitional problems can be illustrated by what will be recorded in American uh, textbooks by our president a few presidents ago who said, I'll answer your question as long as we can talk about what the definition of is is. In other words, language matters, definitions matter, but people don't stop long enough to make sure that they have the same definitions. This is especially true of theological classifications. I've said before, I'm often asked, are you a cessationist? Are you a Calvinist? Are you a dispensationalist? 
And I've learned over the years not to give an answer really quickly to those questions until I say, what do you mean by the question that you're asking? So grateful for the ground gained in recent years about God's sovereignty and salvation. More books have been written, more sermons have been preached. So much has been gained in giving attention to God's sovereignty in salvation. Each of these so-called five points of Calvinism, I prefer to call them the doctrines of grace, all suffer from caricatures from being described and defined outside of biblical parameters and definitions. It's the lack of biblical precision that leaves these theological pillars vulnerable to misunderstanding and to misapplication, which is why we've stopped in our study of election in the text of Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, and said, let's stop and make sure that while we're talking about this, that we understand what the doctrine really means and what it really says. So we've come... Fourthly, in our outline to overwhelming grace, irresistible grace is what it's called. What a place that has occupied in my own heart. J.I. Packer writes of it and says, grace proves irresistible just because it destroys the disposition to resist. Isn't that good? It's irresistible because it destroys the disposition to resist. This will be our topic for our study this morning. And there are so many texts that feed into this amazing, amazing river of a doctrine. Now, if you want a subpoint under number four, I want to give you three bullet points under this. We're going to talk about the confusing character caricatures of this doctrine, how it's misunderstood, the confusing caricatures of the doctrine of irresistible grace or overwhelming grace. Secondly, we're gonna look at the biblical definition of the doctrine. And thirdly, enthused evangelism because of the doctrine. So we'll look first at confusing caricatures, second at biblical definition, third at confusing, excuse me, enthused evangelism. Let's look number one then, or letter A, at the confusing caricatures of the doctrine of overwhelming grace. First, we need to understand that the term irresistible grace did not originate from Calvinists. That was what those who believed in Arminian, man-centered, man-sovereign salvation doctrine accused the Calvinists of believing. We looked at this in the Synod of Dort a few weeks ago. The remonstrants who were against the Calvinists said, you men, you people believe in irresistible grace. You know what they were saying? You're saying, you're actually saying that if God wants to save someone, he might even do it against their will. Which is exactly what he does. Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink wrote so articulately about this. He says, the term irresistible grace is not really a Reformed origin, but was used by Jesuits and remonstrance enemies of Calvinism to characterize the doctrines of efficacy, of the efficacy of grace as it was advocated by Augustine and those who believed as he did. They made fun of biblical articulations of grace by saying, 
you, this is wrong, but they said, you misunderstand grace by saying that it overwhelms and intercepts a man or a woman's will and makes them believe something that they would have otherwise not believed without the intervention of God. And they're right. Bavink goes on to say, he preferred the terms like invincible grace, unconquerable grace, I like overwhelming grace, all the same thing. Why is this a problem? Well, because irresistible grace lacks some biblical precision because the Bible speaks often about those who resisted grace. Matthew 11, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, had occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. What is he saying? These people in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ himself resisted grace, resisted salvation, put a stiff arm up against God and said, we will not believe. So if grace was truly irresistible, would it not have overwhelmed their disbelief? Acts 17, 50, excuse me, 7, 51. You men who are stiff-necked, Stephen speaking, and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just as your fathers did. We can understand then Bavinck's and the Reformers' objection to the term, and part of the reason this doctrine has been so caricatured is the same reason as unconditional election was when we looked at that. Namely, if you believe that God is absolutely sovereign, then believers are no longer responsible to evangelize. Just... Let God work it out. But as we'll see in a moment, nothing can be farther from the truth of that. Those who object to irresistible grace most often do so because they desire to protect man's free will. Let me say it again. We've said all the way through our study, man does not have free or neutral, if by free you mean neutral, will. God does not coerce a free will in salvation. He raises the dead. Romans 6 tells us that we don't have wills that are free. They are actually slaves, enslaved to sin. God overcomes our sinful wills in salvation and makes us willing believers. We are born with enslaved wills, slaves to sin, And he breaks that bondage in salvation. Anthony Hokema, great reformer, reformed doctrine, reformed writer rather, writes this. In reply to the contention that God violates our wills in regeneration, you know, he drags us kicking and screaming and we may say that since we are by nature dead in our sins, our wills need to be renewed so that we may again serve God as we should. God's action in regenerating us, therefore, is no more a violation of our wills than it is artificial respiration applied to a person whose breathing has stopped, end quote. In other words, he says, we're not talking about coercing wills. We're talking about raising a dead person to believe. 
the idea that irresistible or overwhelming grace means that God coerces people to believe in him against their wills, kicking and screaming is wrong. They don't have any will to believe without the kind, wonderful, gracious inclination and empowerment of God. Again, back to Packer, he said, grace is irresistible not because it drags sinners to Christ against their will, but because it changes men's hearts so they will come most freely, being made willing by his grace, end quote. Hear the difference? This is not where a man or a woman is standing, choosing God or choosing the devil, choosing right or choosing wrong, choosing good or choosing evil, and they're standing neutral with that disposition. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We are running away from God, hell-bound sinners, on our way to a Christless eternity. And God intercepts that trajectory and turns the heart to be willing to come to him. And without that gift, no one would ever believe. That leads us to consider the biblical definition of the doctrine. We've looked at the confusing caricatures of, the, of irresistible grace, that it's just, you know, giving people uh, a choice and an option. That's wrong. Now let's look definitionally. Number two, or letter A, letter B rather, biblical definition for the doctrine of overwhelming grace. Biblical definition for the doctrine of overwhelming grace. Let's begin with the problem as Paul describes it. Okay, to the Corinthian believers. He said, 2 Corinthians 4, the, th- th- think about this condition. I know you know this passage. I know you've read this passage. Think about it fresh. Think about the condition it articulates about our hearts. The God of this world, that will be Satan and his minions, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. What a statement. We're dead in our trespasses and sins with satanic coercion to blind our minds against truth. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see what? The light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So much in that. Satan is all about trying to blind people's minds from understanding the light of the gospel through the dark heart, the glory of Christ, who Jesus is, what he's done, who is the image of God, the God, very God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Then he says, for we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And then I love this, verse six. For God who said, just think about this, light shall shine out of darkness. That says in creation, That same God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where in the face of Christ. That's profound, folks. He's saying as magnificent, as spectacular, as incredible as the creation of the universe. So is God's calling and causing a heart to believe in him. We'll see this to the Ephesians. He penned these familiar words. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We've, we'll get to that just in a few weeks. We've already studied through our total inability study the absolute desperate condition 
in which every man finds himself. And the question answered in an overwhelming grace, irresistible grace, is this. What God will and what God can do about our predicament of being dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God. Ephesians 2 will tell us, separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. Remember how Paul describes it? We spent some time in this in Romans 5. Listen to these descriptions. For a while we were still helpless, there's a word, helpless. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly, helpless and ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet, third word, sinners, helpless, ungodly sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. Doesn't sound like a very neutral position to me. By the way, if you read about this in other texts, you'll see words like effectual calling, a calling that actually happens, it has power, or a general call that's distinguished from that. Everyone is called to believe the effectual calling is God applying his, his grace to the believing heart. It's always successful, the effectual call is. In some, the reformed position on calling to salvation can be expressed in this phrase. God brought me to Christ. God brought me to Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the clearest articulations of reformed theology ever written, says this. All those whom God has predestined unto life and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call first by his word and his spirit second out of that state of sin and death in which they were by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ third he says enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God and fourth taking away their heart of stone giving them a heart to flesh to believe And fifthly, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, delivering them to that which is good. Sixth, and effectually effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. And seven, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. I grew up on the campfires singing what a lot of you did. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I love that song. But the truth of that song is a little bit more expansive than that phrase. I have decided to to follow Jesus. You know why? Because he decided I would decide. He gave me the grace to believe. That's why. This is what we call monergistic regeneration. You ever heard that? Monergistic. Mono, singular, singular source, which is God. 
Ergistic from the ergon, meaning to work. This work is entirely of God. Let me say it as simple as possible. If God doesn't cause your heart to believe, you won't believe. And if you believe, it's because God enlightened your heart. He's sovereign. That's why we call it sovereign grace. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Exodus 33, verse 19, which Paul quotes in Romans 9. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Paul explains to us how this works in clear order. We call this the ordo salutis, the order of salvation events. Romans 8, verse 28, you know, but gotta keep reading. (laughs) We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we look at that usually as everything that's happening in life, we can have perspective, and that's true. But specifically, he applies God's sovereignty to this next chain of events. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's this calling of verse 30 that's overwhelming, irresistible grace. Are you still in Ephesians? Can we just, this is so hard not to, can we just... Can we just sneak ahead just a little bit? Just turn the page, peek over at chapter two. Verse four, I wanna tell you, I am waiting to preach verses four to 10 like a kid waiting for Christmas. It is so hard for me to even read these words without sobbing because they are so drenched with kindness. After declaring our deadness in our trespasses and sins. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You want a synonym for that? He tells us, for by what? Grace, you have been saved. Do you see that that's a parallel? That's an appositional position. It's a a synonym to made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up in him, seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, in the ages to come, for all eternity, he will show the surpassing riches of what? His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of anything you could do, works that no one could boast. The very notion of grace means that he gives us something we don't deserve and cannot earn and cannot attain by ourselves. It's overwhelming because it dissolves a sinner's natural born resistance to the gospel. There's the summary. 
overwhelming grace dissolves a sinner's natural born resistance to the gospel. It breaks the arm that stiff arms God from birth. Ah, Bruce Ware. Listen to his words. When Calvinists refer to irresistible grace, they mean to say that the Holy Spirit is able, when he so chooses, to overcome all human resistance and so cause his gracious work to be utterly and effectively and ultimately irresistible. In soteriology, the doctrine of irresistible grace refers to the Spirit's work to overcome all sin-induced resistance and rebellion, open blind eyes and even hardened hearts so that sinners understand and embrace the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. Such is the grace by which we are saved. And then he concludes this paragraph by saying, may all honor and glory be given to God alone for such a wondrous salvation. Piper says the same thing. Irresistible grace means that the resistance that all human beings exert against God every day is wonderfully overcome at the proper time by God's saving grace for undeserved rebels who he freely chooses to save. What is to be our response to God's effectual call in our, evangel- in our evangelistic efforts? See, see where what's called hyper-Calvinism could sneak in here, sneak in here? It's easy to think, well, if, if man is dead and his trespasses and sins, if he naturally resists God, if only God can break that rebellious spirit, if only God can make a man or woman willing to come, then what do I do? What's my position? Why don't you just let go and let God save those who he's gonna save? No one is going to not get saved because he doesn't work, so I'm not really responsible, right? Let's come to our third subpoint. Letter C, enthused, I love this, enthused evangelism because of the doctrine of overwhelming grace. I think the most definitive argument against the Arminian theological perspective is simply the Christian intuition that every believer has. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let me explain. Everyone I know, Armenian or Calvinist, naturally, intuitively, instinctively, without thinking, when they know someone they want to be saved, converted, someone they love who they want to see know Christ, they pray for them. Why? Do you understand the admission to the sovereignty of God in salvation when you pray for someone's salvation? If it's up to them and not God, what can God do? Why would you ask God to do anything? J.I. Packer, Jim Packer wrote about this and his words are better than mine. I know I have a lot of quotes today. These will be on the website tomorrow. He says this, so, so cutting right through our confusion. He says this, quote, you pray for the salvation of others. In what terms now do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves? 
independently of him? Huh, I do not think you do. I think that what you do is pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and quite decisively save them. That he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hearts, renew their natures, move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayer that you are not asking God to actually bring them to faith because you recognize that that is something he cannot do. Nothing of the sort. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so in the assumption that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. You entreat him to do that very thing. Your confidence in asking rests on the certainty that he is able to do what you ask. And so indeed, he is. This conviction which animates our intercessions is God's own truth written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. In prayer then, and the Christian is at his sanest and wisest when he prays, I like that, you know that it is God who saves men. You know that what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself and the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. Thus, by your practice of intercession, no less than by giving thanks for your conversion, you acknowledge and confess the sovereignty of God's grace. And so do all Christian people everywhere, end quote. Very simply this, when we ask God to save our family, when we ask God to save our loved ones, when we ask God to save our neighbors, when we ask God to save our acquaintances, when we ask God to save our coworkers, we are openly admitting to God that he is sovereign in his grace. This is what God's effectual call is. And God's effectual call is not problematic for our evangelism. It guarantees it. It guarantees it. Steele and Thomas say, the spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, (laughs) to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in salvation, in the salvation of those to whom it is extended. Can I give you a few takeaways from this? Just some backing up and looking at this, at this doctrine and saying, so what? First of all, this. Overwhelming grace encourages evangelism and missions. Just the opposite of what you might think. Overwhelming grace, irresistible grace encourages evangelism and missions. Remember, after teaching and writing on the sovereignty of God and salvation for two and a half chapters, Paul says after saying God is sovereign, he melts hearts, he hardens hearts. In Romans 10 for after all that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. He doesn't even say elect. To everyone who believes, he has no tension in his heart saying God is sovereign in salvation, but you must believe. The same Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Even stronger, a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg you. Does that sound like a, a hardened Calvinist to you? God's sovereignty can certainly do the work of a conversion if someone picks up a Bible on their own and understands the gospel from it, but the way of salvation usually works in cooperation with our evangelistic efforts. Theologians speak of this as God using means, you and I are means, of him speaking through us to reconcile believers. Peter tells us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us meaning evangelism is showing people how compelling Christ has been to us and giving a defense for the hope that resides inside us. Secondly, second takeaway, irresistible grace, overwhelming grace, does not give an unbeliever an excuse. If you don't know Christ, it would be very easy for you to sit under the hearing of these passages and think something like this. Well, I, I don't have that heart to believe. I, 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 I'm not elect. I, this is on God, not me. Nothing could be farther from the truth. First Peter 2, 8, listen to this balance. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they, unbelievers, stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom, they were also appointed. Disobedience and God's sovereignty in the same verse. So what's the implication? It's to have a heart to obey. And if you have a heart to obey, if you want to believe, even if ever so slightly, that's a seed of faith that God will water. Look, I, I'm so troubled as, as one of your shepherds, one of your pastors, I'm so troubled when I hear people say, well, I just don't feel this. I, I don't have a heart to believe. I'm, I'm, I'm not, not quite there, but I want to. Keep wanting to. Keep wanting to. Lean into God. Draw near to God and he will certainly draw near to you. A third takeaway, this doctrine gives us comfort. Gives us comfort. Jesus instructed us not to be discouraged when people do not receive the gospel. Remember the parable of the soils we studied in Mark? Mark chapter four. It says only one of the four soils actually produces a plant or fruit. One of four and it quotes Isaiah that says only one-tenth of people will believe. Now, those are not exacting margins, but it, just, it does tell us that, can I say it? Fewer people will believe than will disbelieve. 
Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Broad is the way to destruction, many will find it. Few there will be that find the narrow way to salvation, Jesus said in Matthew. Be sober, Timothy. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, 2 Timothy 4, 5. Also, remember this just as a point of evangelism. You don't know where you are in God's process. You just don't know where you are. You may be planting, you may be watering, you may be fertilizing, you may get to see the fruit, you may eat the fruit and get a taste of it. You just don't know. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So don't give up if you don't know where you are in the process of someone you care about and love and bringing them to the saving knowledge of Christ. If you want to believe, but you're having trouble, would you please give me a call and we can sit in my office and talk. You can sit on my couch with Kim and me and we can talk. We, our prayer room will be open in a few minutes. We, we can talk to you there. If there's any spark of desire, follow that. Kim and I were at our end with John We didn't know what to do. Then six and a half years ago, John attended our annual summer camp. I had spoken at the camp the first two nights and returned with Kim back to Kansas City. But my good friend, Justin McKitterick, was preaching on the last night of camp on the broad and narrow ways I just spoke of in Matthew chapter 7. About 11 p.m. that night, I, we got a phone call. I was dead asleep as I usually am at 11 p.m. at night. Saw so was John, woke up, grabbed the phone. Kim and I were lying in bed and put him on speakerphone. And this is what he said. Dad, Mom, I want to give up fighting God. I want to follow Jesus and I want to repent of my sins. And then with tears, he begged our forgiveness for how he had treated us and began to confess things we didn't even know about. <laughs> and God saved our son through his overwhelming, irresistible grace. Apart from me, apart from Kim, likely in spite of me to be truthful, and that night, this doctrine moved from theory to reality in my mind. He's now a Bible college graduate, a seminary student here at the Expositors Seminary. He's the father to our first grandson and one of my best friends. Don't give up on anyone. Never give up. Never stop praying. Never stop hoping. Take full advantage of the access we have to the great Savior and Redeemer to effectually call others to himself. Listen with fresh ears 
to how the sentence climaxes that I read at the beginning. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in Jesus the beloved. If you're a believer, do you praise the glory of his grace? Do you have a sanctified memory that runs back to the fact that he saved you by his kind disposition and his grace? And if not, you can run to his open arms of grace today, this morning. I would beg you, just as Paul begged unbelievers, be reconciled to God. Believe the gospel. Accept his forgiveness. Accept his mercy and grace. Be forgiven. Be adopted as his child. And you can know salvation before you leave the building this morning.